This episode is sponsored by Realtor.com, who wants you to take advantage of your free profile on Realtor.com. By claiming and completing your free profile, adding a photo, and all of the information that puts you head and shoulders above the competition, you're on your way to receiving free leads, helping search engines find you, and staying top of mind with past clients. To learn more about claiming your free profile, go to realtor.com forward slash profile. Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Real View podcast brought to you by Ohio Realtors. I am your host, Allison Wiley. Joining me today, he is our very special guest, our keynote speaker this year at our 2023 Ohio Realtors convention. His name is Colonel Mark W. Tillman. He was chosen as the nation's 12th presidential pilot. He served as pilot and commander of Air Force One from 2001 to 2009. Colonel Tillman was at the controls of Air Force One through numerous national events, including on September 11th, 2001. He kept him out of harm's way and connected the Flying Oval Office to the nation's first responders. He was also the first pilot to fly the commander-in-chief into a war zone, where he personally orchestrated and executed the covert operation with flawless success. And he planned all this in secrecy, which is really cool, too. I'm like, this is just such a cool job. I'm so excited to be hearing from you today, Colonel Tillman. But that's not all. He had a 30-year career span in the United States Air Force. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in 2004 and promoted to Brigadier General by the President of the United States, the first military line officer to receive this honor. For political reasons, this was not confirmed by the Senate, so he retired as colonel. But wow, oh my gosh, so amazing and incredible to be welcoming you onto the show today into our convention. But first and foremost, thank you for your service and welcome onto the show today. Outstanding. Thank you so much for having me. That introduction was incredible. Thank you. I didn't know I did all that. <laughs> I I always try to get a lot of background and, and information on people before, of course, I interview them. And I was just reading, you know, all of this and it's like, wow, this is going to be so fun and so exciting to hear from you today and as well as our convention. And um, you're going to give us kind of a little preview in our 30 minute segment today into what you're going to be talking about for our bigger general session at convention. But I think we should start at the beginning, Colonel, and maybe tell us a little bit about you, your career, um, how you became pilot, where you got to the levels that you were able to get to, how you rose to the top. Um, Walk us through what your career journey was like. Grew up in South Florida, Hollywood, Florida, then went to Tulane University, graduated as a chemical engineer, military the time uh, wasn't needing pilots, so I took a engineering job in Dayton, Ohio, at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Did a couple years of engineering there, and then got the flying bug again. They hired, were hiring pilots, so I went ahead and uh, applied for pilot training. Went to pilot training and never looked back. I I don't think I've used my engineering degree since, but it's been a lot of fun flying. So. Basically, from that point forward, flew T-37 uh, aircraft teaching folks how to fly and pilot training for the Air Force, and flew C-130 cargo planes, 
was selected for the 89th Airlift Wing at uh, Andrews Air Force Base, flying congressional folks, senators, first lady, vice president. Did almost 18 years there. Shortly after I arrived, interviewed and was selected at Air Force One. So I, I spent a little over 17 years at Air Force One, started out as a co-pilot under President H.W. Bush, then flew all eight years of President Clinton's administration, and I was truly honored and have been selected as the nation's 12th presidential pilot in history, assigned to President George W. Bush, commanding Air Force One. So truly honored to have risen up through the ranks as a pilot, finally in the end uh, selected by the Bush administration to be assigned to the president. Yeah, very, very cool story and cool background. Thanks for for sharing a little bit of that history there. Would you mind telling us maybe just a little bit what it was like as pilot of Air Force One, what some of your roles and responsibilities were like, what kind of your day-to-day duties and and day looked like? I know that's probably hard to to nail down what a day-to-day role was like in your position, but tell us a little bit about what you did and what you were responsible for for Air Force One. The Air Force One job, I joke with everyone, was probably, as the commander, the simplest job of any leader. You get the opportunity to work with the United States Air Force as best of the best, and also with uh, contractors that have been hand-selected. So the 89th Airlift Wing hires the best of the best out of the Air Force. We select from the 89th Airlift Wing, so kind of jokingly, we get the best of the best of the best. It's such a pleasure working with folks that are walking in, whistling and singing every day. Glad to be there. Glad to be supporting the president of the United States and the first family. My job day to day was I was assigned to the White House along with the Marine One commander, the head of Camp David, as well as the White House mess. So, I mean, it was a group of us assigned to the White House military office. And then I had a dual hat. I also was a group commander for the United States Air Force. But my responsible individual that I always reported to was the president of the United States. So I reported to President George W. Bush. You know, truly an honor, but day-to-day activities were dedicated to making sure that we were ready to go at any point. And whatever we did, we always did it safely. And customer service, obviously, was the number one priority. But every one of us was just dedicated to the mission and and rallying around uh, President Bush. And and to this day, Air Force One, that's what our job is, to make sure that the Commander-in-Chief, as well as the President of the United States, is fully supported communications-wise, as well as whatever necessities they need to have a flying White House in the sky. Same things he gets on the ground or she gets on the ground, we give them in the air as well. No, that's so cool. And I loved in the introduction of this when it said, you know, that you connected the flying Oval Office to the first responders, you know, during 9-11, which we're going to get into in a minute. But that is so crazy to think about that the same exact technology and service and everything that they have in the Oval Office, they have on the plane as well. I think that is so cool. What were some of the most interesting things that kind of uh, happened on the plane? Or do you have any interesting stories aside from kind of the 9-11 stuff, which we want to talk about in a minute? But what was that like kind of managing that flying Oval Office? The neatest part is to watch the first family when they come on the jet they feel right at home. So it is, they have a flight attendant assigned to him and the flight attendant makes sure, you know, he gets in the first lady as well, gets whatever they need when they come on. We know their likes, dislikes, the the mess and the, their chefs let us know what they're having this week. 
And we give the president his choice of like 10 different entrees. Uh, we know, you know, President Bush was famous for Tex-Mex foods as well as, you know, ice cream, hot fudge sundaes, just a down to earth, true American jumping on board. Total respect for him. And he had respect for all of us. Uh, same with the first lady. Mrs. Bush was beyond incredible. The beauty of flying George W. Bush was his father, H.W. Bush, as well as Barbara Bush, were majority of the time were flying with us as well. So we had two generations of Bush family there and the children. It was like being at home with them in, in the White House or being wherever they wanted. We took care of them and they took care of us constantly. So, you know, some of the stories that occurred on the plane, it was mainly just watching how they interact with people. Every president's the same. They, they have great faith in the American system and democracy. And it's just neat to watch them take care of people constantly. I mean, that that's their job. And, you know, a lot of people may not think that of some of the presidents, but I guarantee you they what I saw is they were always thinking ahead to make sure that the American people were taken care of. Yeah, I love that. It's so great to hear. And also, who doesn't love ice cream and a good, you know, <laughs> Tex-Mex, you know, dish? I know I do for sure. So that's nice to hear that the president uh, enjoyed the same things. Okay, I want to transition to 9-11 in that day. Tell us what it was like for you on the day. Walk us through some of the events of the day and kind of how you were involved in kind of uh, what you went through on such a crazy day. What happened was the first part of the trip was education visit to the state of Florida. So Jacksonville was the first stop. Back in those days, you know, the Bush mantra was no child left behind with regards to education. So we met with teachers in Jacksonville. Then we flew over to Sarasota. You know, a lot of people thought that we had knowledge of what was about to occur. We did not. Purely, uh, you know, we were blindsided by everything. The morning of September 11th, it was a standard day. Everyone showed up at the plane, the normal scenario, normal sequence of events. And then shortly after, you know, around 8.30, 8.45, when the first towers hit New York City, we started getting more and more information. And even after the first tower was hit, we had no idea that it was an actual threat against the United States. It was always brought out that it was operator error, that an aircraft had hit the first tower. Within 15 minutes, it became very obvious that the country was under attack. So for us, our standard scenario is we're always there on location with the president. We have the capability to have the president be secured and move to a location to protect not only the president, but the continuity of government. That is the entire process that we, so not only does the president have to be secured, but for the continuity of government, so does the vice president, speaker of the house. Everything came together on September 11th, kind of a short scenario. Once it all occurred, we were ready to move the president of the United States, moving into position to make sure that the continuity of government was taken care of. Unfortunately, the hijackers, as well as the terrorists, didn't have a plan of shutting down our communication, but our communication became saturated because there was just so many players using limited assets. I mean, it became obvious to us that our communication was going to be degraded compared to what it normally was. It kind of changed the whole scenario, but we took care of the president and basically left Sarasota brought the president where he needed to be airborne, established communications with the key players. President Bush did not want to hunker down and hide anywhere. That's kind of my big joke about the Texans. Uh, 
it's tough to tell a Texan he's going to start hiding. He's going to get into the battle. And that's exactly what President Bush did. We He wanted to go back to Washington. Eventually, Secretary Rice, or at the time, Dr. Rice, and the vice president let him know that that probably wasn't the best idea. At this point, as the day progressed, we kept them in contact with the National Command Authority, nations around the world, just kept them moving to decoy, and then finally brought them back to Washington, D.C., where I think most people know he addressed the American public that evening. Yeah, and I think I remember reading just about, you know, the day of September 11th and and looking back on that, that at one point, um, you all were the only plane to be actually flying in the sky during that day. What was that like to just know this major event had just happened and yet you're up there in the sky, you know, with the president keeping him safe and being the only plane up there? I mean, did you ever imagine, you know, when you first became a pilot and worked your way through the Air Force that this would ever be something that you would encounter? This was very unusual, but, you know, we're highly trained to move the president basically against any kind of conflict, any kind of threat from outside the United States. The challenge for us was this was within the United States. We'd been beaten by people within our own, you know, within our own country. They were, they had taken control of a lot of our aircraft. That was never thought of, discussed. So there was no real plan to counter, but we were making it up as we went along. And we were highly effective. The airspace was given to us. There was no conversations between us and the air traffic controllers. The fear was that if we talked on the radios, others would know our position. So we kept quiet the whole time. The controllers kept quiet. We basically flew around the country without air traffic control. It was an eerie feeling not hearing things, other planes. And then when we got the word that all airliners had been put had been put to the ground, basically keep the airspace safe so that we could identify those who were trying to attack us. It was a scenario that, you know, the air traffic controllers and the head of the FAA at the time did amazing things. People were thinking outside the box and they were resolving issues. And to this day, you know, the first responders, the air traffic controllers, all of them did incredible feats and kept the American public safe from that day and that day forward until we could come up with a new system to protect the American people. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, Visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. Yeah, and I think it's kind of incredible, you know, when we think about when crisis happens and just how the first responders, you know, individuals like you, the military, our other leaders in office at the time, just the ability to respond and to respond well in the midst of, you know, just a major, major crisis. It's kind of remarkable and really just a testament to us as Americans, how we can respond and just really come together and rally. And something that we never thought that we would ever experience in our careers and things like that. And to be able to 
come up with those solutions. And like you said, you know, be as creative as as we were in the midst of such an unprecedented time. I think it's it's really a testament. And is that something kind of you found too that day, just how everyone rallied together and really just came together as one to make sure everyone stayed safe and that we were keeping the country as as okay as we possibly could? You hit it right on the head. That's That's my exact message to everyone is the military is highly trained. We go over things and over things, and then we debrief and brief, et cetera just to make sure during times of combat, we do everything right and we don't want anyone to be injured. This was the exact same scenario. The first responders responded and took care of business. The military went to its highest threat level and we took care of business. But to be honest, the civilian population, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Everywhere we went, there were thousands of Americans that came together. President Bush being a Republican and the Democrats also on board, Everyone could care less whether it didn't matter what your ethnicity was, whether you watched Fox News, CNN, whatever, MSNBC, it didn't matter. We were Americans. And every place we went, Americans came together. They were chanting USA, young sons and daughters, et cetera, joined the United States military to protect our country. And they came together, not because of uh, an idea of getting college tuition money or anything like that. They came together because they were Americans and we were protecting the homeland. To this day, that information was out there. Everyone became incredible Americans. I saw it all over the world and I saw it within the United States. You know, my message today is that things are a little different now. We seem to be worried about what someone else has and whatever. Unfortunately, we don't need another national emergency to bring us together. It becomes very obvious to me that Americans had the same mentality. If there's a tornado or disaster, whatever, people come together and we take care of each other. I mean, that's something a good leader needs to go ahead and take care of here in America and let everybody know that this is what it's about. Your organization takes care of the folks all around you. You're a good advocate for everything like that. That kind of concept at the lowest level and all at the highest level needs to happen. Everyone needs to know they're being taken care of, and we're all part of the same team. We're all Americans. Yeah, I love hearing that message. And I think, you know, right, you're so right that when you think back about that day and that time and how we just were so united, and now I think that where we are today, you know, with some of the things that's, that this country's experiencing, it's like you almost long, I know I long for that feeling of we're all in this together and we're all taking care of one another. And it's nice to know that that's still, you know, something that you find just as important. And I think that we can get back to that point at some time too. And you're right, no more national emergencies to get us there, but that spirit's still alive and it's still something that, you know, I think we all have in us. I want to talk a little bit too about another event. Lucky you got to fly the president into a war zone. This was the first time that this had ever been done. Tell us about that decision and your role and experience with that. Once the war started in Iraq and, and we were also in Afghanistan, the president was always famous. He wanted to be with the troops. He wanted to make sure the troops knew that America was supporting, that they were behind them. So the first plan was, could we get into Afghanistan? And we couldn't. I mean, the Afghanistan was a war zone with airports that were not secure. It was kind of a uh, special ops war. So, I mean, they're fighting each other with horses and camels and firing rockets at each other. Special operations were occurring. For Baghdad, though, once Baghdad came, basically our concept was that we were going to go see the troops. You know, it was a challenge because Baghdad was still, once again, was not 
secure, was not safe. But President Bush made the decision and let us know that, hey, we are going in for Thanksgiving dinner. So when I got called to the White House, was given the brief. The plan for me was to come up with, with some way to get him safely out of the United States without anybody knowing, land in Baghdad, meet with the troops, and turn around and come back. So challenge for me, but not a challenge for my team. We all talked about it. We came up with a crazy concept of no one ever knowing about it. And it was highly successful only because my concept was I didn't have to tell anybody what we were doing. I relied on the team knowing, including the United States military, knowing that they were trained and they didn't have to know who they were supporting. All it took was once they got the word minutes before we landed that the president of the United States was going to be landing, everybody jumped into action and the firepower was increased. Everything took care of the boss as I knew they would, because our United States military is an incredible machine that works perfect every time. For me, it it wasn't a challenge. So we came up with that. We got the president in and out of Baghdad. As I'll talk about to the folks in the convention, I'll give some things that are no longer classified. But the key to that whole trip was the fact that the president and his staff, they all worked together with us. And we put a lot of things in motion that the president was fully briefed in on, and he supported everything. He trusted us immensely. That's just the beauty of President Bush and Mrs. Bush, the way they handle everything that they do. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. And I can't wait to hear more, too. It's such a good uh, cliffhanger that you left us off at. Um, So going to definitely be interested to learn more and hear the rest of this story. What were your favorite things about working as the Air Force One pilot, your time with the president, I know you mentioned you just enjoyed being with the family and, and seeing them on the plane and things like that. But what were some of your favorite things that you loved about your job? And what is what are some things that you'll take away with you, you know, those life lessons maybe that you learned in this role? Being about 30 feet in the air, looking out the window of Air Force One, you've seen kings and queens and presidents come to the side of the aircraft. So you've seen history occurring right outside of your window. Those are the things I'm going to remember. But biggest thing I'll always remember is uh, what the presidents did with the families of the fallen. President Bush obviously had more families that he had to deal with uh, as a result of the Iraq war. But the way he treated the first responders and the first responders yelling and screaming, USA, USA, when the president came off, as well as the military, injured soldiers and sailors, et cetera, Marines, all at the foot of the stairs. Example being, uh, you know, a young Marine that had lost both legs. He He's sitting in his wheelchair at attention, saluting uh, as we're coming onto the ramp and seeing him sit out there and then learning all about him and all the things that, you know, his life completely changed. But he was there to talk with the president and he let the president know about his likes, dislikes, how honored he was to be a United States Marine and always will be a Marine. It's those kind of things that I'll always remember and just proud to have served in the United States military. You know, my son's a United States Navy uh, fighter pilot, living my life through him now. Proud to be an American and proud to tell the stories of to anyone that'll listen to let them know how their United States military is always there for them. But the key to this is if you know anybody in the military, then take care of them. If you got a friend or a neighbor that has somebody serving Make sure they know that you're thinking about them and let them know that we're always there for them. They're doing a lot of dangerous things all over the world. And our United States military knows that America's behind them no matter what's going on. We're always there. All of us that have retired and are veterans right now, 
you give us the phone call, we're going to be back in action. Uniform's going to be a little tight, but we're going to be right there supporting this great country. Oh, I love that. And what a, what an important message. And that's something that, you know, we should be thinking about and sharing every day. And also just a shout out, you know, to our veterans. What a good time to thank you all for your service. Anyone that's listening, your friends and family, you know, that have served you as well. Colonel, you know, we appreciate you guys. This this country really wouldn't be what it is without you all and, and the work that you explained that this that our military does. You know, we are really fortunate to have the best in the world. And I think that's something, you know, that we should be thinking about every day and always keeping on the top of our mind. Do you have a favorite place that you visited? I mean, I'm sure you've flown all around the world with your time being the Air Force One pilot, but kind of, you know, in your lifespan as a whole, I'm sure you've done a ton of traveling before and after that. Do you have a favorite place that you enjoyed visiting or um, a favorite trip that you were a part of? Yeah, I had the opportunity to take President uh, Clinton to down to New Zealand. And we went to Queenstown and we we flew the Blue Fjords low level to show them all that. And that was amazing. What what an incredible beauty down there. And those kind of trips all around the world. There's places all over the world that people all over the world are the same. I mean, everybody loves the same things. Family's important to them. So to go to these countries and watch how people react to the United States of America coming on their soil is just an amazing event. So when we talk about immigration, when we talk about all these different events, people all over the world respect and love the Americans. And I've seen it in all the different countries I've been to. I've been to almost all the major cities all around the world. And it it just means so much. So I can list one place that I enjoyed visiting, but every place you go to, especially here in the United States, it's, it's the same good old good hometown America that uh, is always the best of the best. Oh, I love that. That's that's really cool and really special. I'm sure something that you'll remember, you know, for the rest of your life, just just that warm welcome that these other countries have for us. So I think that's all we're going to cover today because I want everyone to come to your keynote session at our convention September 11th through 13th in Cincinnati this year. You get to hear the rest of this incredible story that Colonel Tillman has to share with us. And I'm so excited to hear more from you. And thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks for joining us um, in September, too. We're really excited to to have you back in Ohio and and, uh, not too far from where you spent your time at in Dayton. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you and uh, your enthusiasm is incredible. So it's great talking. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to all you guys listening, make sure you are registered for convention coming up September 11th through 13th in Cincinnati. You can register by visiting ohiorealtors.org slash convention. There you will find the full schedule of of events, including the Colonel's keynote speech. I believe it's happening um, on Monday or Tuesday. Make sure to circle that on your agenda. You won't want to miss hearing more for us. I know he has so much more to share. So thank you guys for tuning in and we will be back with you next week. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time.